0: Good evening. I'm very pleased to welcome you to this online Melbourne launch of Linda Jarvin's terrific book, The Shortest History of China. My name is Beck Strading. I'm the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University. Uh, I would like to begin the event tonight by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which La Trobe University sits and I would like to pay my respect to their people both past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who might be joining us this afternoon. La Trobe Asia is proud of our efforts to engage the public in thoughtful thoughtful debate and to deepen our understanding and our knowledge of the region in which we live. And it really does give me great pleasure to welcome Linda Jarvin to this to the virtual La Trobe Asia stage uh, to celebrate her recently published book, The Shortest History of China, uh, which has been published by Black Inc. Now, this was originally uh, going to occur at the State Library of Victoria, and we just missed out with the timing as we went back into lockdown. But we're really delighted to have you here um, joining us via Zoom from Sydney, and I'm sure that Linda needs no introduction for many of you joining us tonight. Uh, Linda is an internationally published author of 12 books, a translator, an essayist, novelist, and specialist writer on Chinese politics, language, and culture. Uh, she is the co editor of the China Story Yearbook and an associate of the Australian Centre on China in the World at the Australian National University. Welcome, Linda, and congratulations on the publication of this book.
1: Thank you so much, Beck. It's so nice to be here. I wish I were there in person, but...
0: <laughs> we'll make it happen at some point, but we'll make do with Zoom for the moment. And we are also very privileged to be joined this evening by two leading academics in Australia are experts in understanding China in their own right. I'd like to welcome Dr Ruth Gamble, who is a lecturer and Australian Research Council DECRA Fellow in History uh, at the School of Humanities and Social Sciences here at La Trobe University. Uh, Ruth specialises in the histories of Tibet and the Himalaya, with a particular interest in the region's rapidly changing environment. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you. Very glad to be here for Linda's (laughs) book. And last but not least, it's terrific to have with us Professor Baogang He, who is the Alfred Deakin Professor and Personal Chair in International Relations at Deakin University. Baogang has research expertise in a range of topics, uh, including Chinese politics, theories of international relations and democratisation and Asian regionalism. It's great to have you here, Baogang.
2: Thank you, Beck. We do have
0: a discount code for the book that Diana will put in the chat function, uh, and this will also be sent out with the email notification for this event. I highly recommend if you haven't had a chance to purchase the book. Uh, that you should get your hands on it. Uh, It is a terrific read. Uh, And there will be an opportunity for some audience Q&A in the last part of tonight's session. Uh, So please do put your questions in the Q&A box throughout the evening and I will pose them to our expert panel uh, when we get to that part. But, Linda, I would like to begin with you. I mean, it's really a remarkable achievement that you've managed to distill this vast, complex history to uh, a relatively <laughs> short book uh, and managing to keep it lively and informative and coherent is really, it's a great achievement. And you say in the intro, I love this uh, in the intro when you say that a wise person would choose to focus on a few things but you're just <laughs> going to focus on it all and I love that approach because you do this magnificent job of revealing the patterns and the threads that recur in the sort of rising and the falling of the empires across two millennia. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, what do you consider to be the kind of the key narratives or the key stories of change and continuity across this vast and messy history? That's mm, such
1: an interesting question. I would say... Um Two of the big changes, we're looking at the really big picture, is China in ancient times was a very rural and agrarian based society. And it was, it, cities uh, began to be important around the 11th century with the Song. Um, but we've seen really accelerated urbanization in recent years. And it's, it's a huge change for Chinese society, democracy, um, economics and so on. So that's just one big broad sweeping change. Another one, which I think is really interesting, is that of the function and the reach of literacy. So uh, Chinese characters were invented, the very first Chinese characters around 3500 BCE. Um, And there's always been since Confucius in particular, who was about 500 BCE, a great respect for the written word, for, for written uh, texts, and so on, and the people who could read them. And so there was this great, um, the, 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 the role of the educated people was quite an important one. They were the ones who would serve the rulers and so on. Um, but they were always a small number of people within the society. And women were not generally privileged uh, to be literate. Some were, and they were amazing early historians and so on. But it um, it was a very privileged position to be literate. And that began to change as well with time. And now we've seen mass literacy. So that's another big sweep and a a, you know, shifting of who who are the elites and who are not, and all that, and then other big thematic continuities um, are the vulnerabilities and the uh, of various ruling houses to corruption as something that can bring down a government. And I think we saw that we sh- we've seen it in so many different uh, dynastic houses where everything was going fine. Until they stopped worrying about what the corrupt were doing to the people. And then rebellions happened and everything kind of went uh, topsy turvy. That's one of the reasons we see Xi Jinping. The first thing he does when he comes into office in 2012 is launch an anti corruption campaign. Other anxieties that have, uh, anxieties and themes that have continued one is that of, unity and disunity and the fear of disunity. So Chinese history has had lots of periods when there has been no central government, no central um, authority, when things have broken up and the whole country is divided into warring or at least competing states. Um, so that was, uh, the, and that fear of that has it exists to the present day, uh, this fear of disunity of the fragility of unity, and the fact that um, it 's also been in Chinese philosophies of rule from very ancient times again back hundreds of years bCE that if you don 't have order, you have chaos mm-hmm. it 's a cycle, and if you and, and it really is a kind of an absolute thing, so you lose the order and you get chaos that's that 's another big continuity. And I would finally just ma- mention very quickly, um, another thing is anxiety and attention to the borders, because China, unlike many countries, has borders with so many different uh, other countries in the past, different peoples, different tribes. The Great Wall was, a- was an attempt to keep the northern border secure. But, you know, you have these incredible um, periods where uh, other tribes were absorbed into the empire. This is why China is a multi ethnic, uh, multi ethnic country. But you also had lots of periods where the greatest fear came from those threats on the border. I mean, in the Tang Dynasty, just to raise one little example, um, which Ruth would know a lot more about, uh, is that in the Tang Dynasty, the Tibetan Kingdom, which was an independent kingdom, raided and sacked the Tang capital of Chang'an. You know, this is a real, real threat to 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 power. Uh, these various things, and, and at different times in Chinese history, the invaders have been the rulers. So the Mongols ruled in the Yuan Dynasty, for example, and the last dynasty was ruled by the Manchus, who were another tribal group from the northeast. China eventually absorbed those peoples, and they are now ethnic minorities. Um, So these are various, I mean, there's many things, but I would just name those to start with.
0: Well, it's certainly a good place to get the conversation started and I want to come back to those themes, but uh, particularly what you're talking about in the, with that last point or, or the, the, the last two points really around order and chaos and fear of fragility and the anxiety uh, around, um, you know, the the, the the authority being sort of uh, broken up, if you like. Uh, I wanted to, to ask about this because Beijing um, celebrated its 100 anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party in July this year and it seems like that that tendency towards trying to centralise authority is part of that story of, of the history of China and you make some really important points in the book about how China is used by the Chinese Communist Party and so I wanted to ask about I'll ask you to sort of explain how is it that the past is used or abused by China's leaders? And what are the sort of, I mean, the political and social implications if history is not subject to free and open and critical scrutiny? It's such a great question. It's such an important one. I think that uh, we
1: have to take it back, however, into the past first and say that every dynasty has been concerned with how history is written. So, every dynasty writes the dynasty uh, writes the history of what came before, and it 's an attempt to control that history, to manage it, but it 's also an attempt to draw lessons from it that will um, help in, in coming up with a better way of ruling you know and so the writing of history has always been a big concern it 's a huge concern right now, and one of the reasons is that I mean, some of you may have heard of a campaign against historical nihilism, which is going on right now. Xi Jinping talks about historical nihilism, and it seems really weird. Like, he's, you know, there's a campaign against girly boys, you know, and there's a campaign against it. And you can kind of see where he's coming from. You don't agree with it, but you can see why they're worried about various aspects of social order. But what is historical nihilism? It is telling the story of China differently to the way the party tells it. That's basically historical nihilism. Why is it important? Xi Jinping is convinced that that is one of the reasons that the Soviet Union uh, fell apart is that they lost control of the historical narrative. Mm. So the I, that just tells you how important holding on to the historical narrative is uh, to Chinese rulers in general and to Xi Jinping in particular. Now. Some of the implications they 're quite serious, so what happens is um i 'll make i 'll talk about two aspects of this they I think everybody has probably heard of the century of humiliation now that 's not just a propaganda thing; it is a propaganda thing, but it 's actually real. There was an incredible it was a century uh beginning around eighteen forty in the eighteen forties with the opium wars um that next century was marked by imperial powers enforcing themselves on China, carving up its uh, resources for themselves to exploit, um, establishing semi-colonial uh, uh, territories within Chinese ports and so on. It was deeply humiliating. It also, they forced the Qing government at the time to uh, give them money in compensation for the terrible things that they had done to China, basically. They, it, was an, it really was a century of humiliation. Now, in 1911, the Republican Revolution um, was thwarted in many ways by a lot of internal problems and an inability to figure out how to establish a republic, but it was also thwarted by continuing assaults from outside, from the Japanese in particular, from the Japan, Japan and Russia in 1904, before the thing, they, they fought a war on Chinese soil over who would dominate the Northeast. That's unbelievable. So the Communist Party's use of that history is to say, 1949, the Communist Party established the People's Republic of China, And that was the end of the century of humiliation. So it uses that history to say, be thankful for us. We are the legitimate rulers of China. On the other hand, to very briefly express some of the dangers of over control of the the narrative of history. um, And I quote a historian called Yuan Wei who in 2006, um, I quote him in the book in 2006, he talked about how education in China Um, did not explore, for example, the the reason why the Yuan the great palace of the Qing emperor, was sacked by the British and the French. And that was because a negotiating team had been uh, tortured by the Chinese officials um, and tortured. Many were murdered and so on. That sparked a need... perceived need to take revenge on China, but they wanted not to sack Beijing. They thought they will go directly for the emperor's beloved Yuan Mingyuan. So they burned that down. If Yuan, Yuan Weishu, this historian said, if you don't teach people this, then you incite a kind of a narrow, inflamed nationalism that's very dangerous because people think we are the victim. There's no reason why people did this to us. It's not saying that that reason is a justification, but you have to have the whole story to be able to draw the lessons of history. And he also talked about other examples. So I think what happened was he published this article, the publication got shut down, they had to make a retraction and today there's no way anybody would publish anything like that.
0: I think we'll get back to the the century of humiliation uh, a little bit later because it does seem to be quite a significant part of the the, the use of the, the historical narrative and, and, and it, An explainer of some of the actions that China takes in its international relations and its defence posture. Uh, But I wanted to ask, one of the most amazing parts of the book that I absolutely loved were these amazing stories of powerful women in Chinese history. There could definitely be another book or multiple books, I feel, coming out of some of the characters. Uh, And these seem to be traditionally left out of histories of China. And So I wanted to ask why is it that these uh, histories tend to be sort of pushed aside and what do we gain from having a better understanding of the role of women uh, and the the sort of the forgotten tales of powerful women in particular?
1: Um, So I'll take the first part, why do we not have them? Um, Who writes the histories? The men. (laughs) And that's one one part of the answer. The other part is what is actually recorded at the time? Very little is recorded of the lives of women, you know, and actually very little is recorded of the lives of ordinary people. So um, it, we get a lot from poetry, from court records, and so on. If we want to put together, you know, from tax records and censuses and so on, but we can. But there were, there are records of what emperors ate, you know, um, but there's not records of how women lived uh, so it's a kind of using uh, indirect sources a lot of the time, and they weren't considered important; they were just the wives and the mothers and uh, because they didn't have a lot of public roles, generally speaking, they weren't considered worthy of recording um, you know uh, but there were there were some who were recorded in history, so we are very lucky some. Were- wrote poetry and we know about them. Others made inventions, so we know about them. Um, There were some who were warriors. I mean, Mulan is probably a composite. (laughs) I don't think there was a single Mulan. There's no evidence for that. But you get these amazing women. And I think, um, what do we gain? We gain a view of history that's not 50% of the country. (laughs) You know, if we just look at 50% of the country, we're only gonna see half of the story. And uh, so I think that it's kind of evident. We also get this sense of, I I think there's some cliches, uh, especially about Chinese women and traditional women and so on. There was definite, there were the bound feet was something that was imposed on women and became a really horrific impediment to mobility. It was an imposition of a very painful breaking of the feet um, for initially aesthetic purposes and kind of erotic and then it became a method of control uh, endorsed by Neo-Confucians of the Song Dynasty and then it was just custom. Um, So, but we also have these amazing characters and to bring them out and I'll just name two very quickly. One is my, one of my favorite people in the book is a late Qing Dynasty feminist who was the daughter of a Qing Dynasty general who gave her a boy's education and taught her martial arts. She then, studied bomb making with Russian anarchists <laughs> and she led an all-female militia in the 1911 revolution. And when Sun Yat-sen failed to give women the vote as he had promised, um, she then led her girls to the legislative assembly and they broke the windows. They kicked the guards to the ground. It was a little bit January the 6th, but <laughs> I think a little bit more sympathetic. Um, and, they, they, and as a newspaper report said, She twisted the beard and boxed the ears of a legislator with her dainty little hands. These are like amazing stories. I just love them. And another thing on a kind of a more serious thing is I don't think many people know that China's first computer was the result of a woman leading. She was like China's leading computer scientist. And she led the team to build China's first computer. We have to know these stories.
0: Yeah, outstanding. I mean, it's just, there, and the book is uh, full of interesting facts around things like that. But, uh, Ruth, I wanted to bring you in here because uh, it was a few months ago now when those of us in Melbourne weren't in lockdown and we were on campus and I remember we were getting a coffee and you said to me, that what you really value about this book is that it makes the case for why it's important to understand history and why it's important to understand China's history. So uh, I'd like to begin by asking you, why do you think it's important for us to understand China's history uh, and how does getting a handle on some of these dominant themes over 2,000 years really assist us with understanding contemporary China? Okay, I think it... um... I think it's kind of this book as well I've got to
3: start by saying that uh, um, it is pay kind of I don't know pay homage I don't know if that's the right word to Linda's ability to be able to get right into the words and to craft words and tell you a story about something that's so epic and it kind of brings together this like amazing translator and a storyteller coming together to to tell us this story right so I think that's like a key and it needs to be respected because we don't respect translators enough in Australia I don't reckon and she's just
2: um anyway <laughs> so
3: it's bringing those two things together um and but i think that there's i like for me the thing that history does is not just explain the present to you but explain the kind of um contingency of the of the present and express alternatives there's things in this story that could have happened that could have created a different present, right? And there's so um, there's things in it that are really um, that you get a sense of. The thing that I really loved about it the most was. Uh, and I've kind of missed being in in my little apartment. Is that Melinda's um, really brought to to light the the best thing about China, which is the people. There's so many stories of people in here, and it's a it's one of. I mean, I know it sounds strange to say it's the most human place because it's so populated, but this there's so many different stories and people tend to just have this idea of China. And it's like, no, there's like 1.5 billion stories there and they're all different and they're all interesting and they're really fascinating. And there's all of these uh, different ways to, um, to to think that you can uh, approach that story. Um, and so in this one, I was thinking that one of the things that makes you understand, that understand China now is that the, the key role that the Chinese people have played in their history and not just the governments. I think that's really important. Um, there was something in it that I always kept, there's, there's an idea in Chinese history that as an environmental historian, I think is the biggest thing that could help the planet at the moment, which we've kind of let go. And it seems to me it's let go in China, which is Wu Wei. Um, so I keep thinking, like learning about the ideas in that haven't been centered that are were important at different parts of the history. And we'll wait. I think uh, Linda can probably explain it better than me. But this idea of doing as little as you can, right? And I think that um, like drawing things out of history that um, could be really helpful is great. Um, and also, I think um, it understand you can understand the things that might be a bit negative from different angles. Right, so like I'd say one of the things that distresses me the most about China at the moment is actually the patriarchy. And I think when people are talking about um, issues with the Chinese government at the moment, like the biggest thing they're talking about is that they have a bunch of like um, upper class blokes sitting in a room making decisions. And it's like, where are the women? Where are the scientists? You know, where like, I mean, they're all scientists, you know, but where are the women scientists and the women with different experiences? Um, uh, so yeah, so I think that Linda's book tells us all of these things. It tells us how we've got there. And I should also say that um, given that I think that one of the biggest issues we're looking at is actually patriarchy, it's really great to have Linda's voice as opposed to the most of the people who seem to be um, talking about China a lot at the moment without that kind of historical background.
0: Well, we might dig into that uh, in a little bit, uh, talking about our understanding of China in Australia, uh, but first, I wanted to um, to ask you, baogang I mean in the field of international relations, we hear a lot about china 's motivations, its activities uh, and and there 's a lot of assertions that what it 's doing Uh, in in a range of different activities is rooted in its history, particularly the century of humiliation that that Linda referenced before and this popular notion that China was once this central civilization in the world and this is the kind of world order that it's seeking to replicate today. Um, And some see this obviously as a threat to uh, an uh, an alternative vision of order that uh, may be led by the US, uh, for example, so how accurate are these narratives, in your view, in explaining um, China's contemporary politics and, and its uh, relations with uh, other states in the world? Or do we need a much more nuanced understanding of how the past drives the present?
2: Sorry, yeah. Um, thank you, Beck, And uh, the... The, the the story about central humiliation you mentioned in the answer is uh, uh, generally speaking is uh, accurate. But I think the, 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 the how the past his, history, German contemporary Chinese strategy, strategic consideration need uh, more deep, more kind of complexity. I think uh, Linda's book offers a very uh, valuable uh, lesson. I, I'll go back her book if uh, any reader are interested to read. Just go back first to uh, uh, page 83 to 84. Linda mentions the Song Dynasty. And that period, it's amazing story that the Song and Neil had a 120 year peace. Mm-hmm. Now this, we should, uh, if we look about how history is driven today, because this is a lot lesson for us to, to learn from it. How can we repeat this successful story in, in contemporary? How does it, United States China can manage the great power rivalry and maintain for a hundred years peace. It's everyone happy now today in this world. So so I think this this is uh, so rich that that book touch on this issue. And uh, Liu cannot cannot take over the Song. Song want to reclaim the territory, but then defeat several times, then each side realize the best you can make a deal. Then in the taiyuan uh, uh, they signed um, the peace deal, and uh, this is amazing story. Now, it's, if we think about this, uh, how China, this uh, Song Dynasty, the emperor manages the power rivalry with the uh, Liu Dynasty, there is through today what we might call this com- competitive partnership. A rivalry partnership. I see the Grant Ellison, Harvard professor, makes story about this law and the Song peace treaty. They, they said, look, historically, Song pays a tribute to the law every year about 300,000 silk or uh, silvers, silvers. And then the law, in return, invest those payments into economic, scientific, technology development in Song Dynasty. So then they kept um, the peace for 120 years. Mm-hmm. So if you think about Western history, Western failure, it, it was celebrated as a great uh, a success, which lasted on about 90 years peace without war. That was a great success. But if you look at the Chinese history, of us, you know, it's an amazing story. 120 year peace. So I think that their book, uh, the that book, Linda's book really offers some of the nuances. We probably need a, uh, so the central uh, humiliation is a part, is a one story and we need to dig out like the Linda mentioned in her book. There's another deep history of us here. How China uh, can accommodate the other power, make a peace. Now, I think we can learn a great deal from Linda's books.
0: Mm, yeah, it's a really Thank, point. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it is a really important point about what we choose to take from history, uh, and and how we uh, choose to interpret that. Um, you know, for for some of our own ends, I guess. But I wanted to to go, uh, go back to one of the points that uh, Ruth was uh, making about you know who who is talking about China in the kind of I guess, the public discussions and the public discourse. And I wanted to ask all three of you, and I'll start with Ruth, um, do Australians know enough about Chinese history? And if you think, uh, and, and if, they, uh, if they did know enough about Chinese history, do you think that it would change some of the current debates that are currently occurring, particularly around China's role in the global order and the sort of discussion around threat uh, that is currently playing out in public discourse. Gosh, you'd hope so.
3: Uh. Couldn't be worse. Um, then,
0: uh, uh, yeah,
3: yeah, this thing—it's almost as if through telling the stories of um, of China, you do understand these things of like uh, what what people are carrying with them, right? And also um, uh, how how they're having how they understand the world. I don't know, though, um, it's I almost feel like in some ways it's about it would be better to learn um, some of the language and those ideas as well as the history, because it's, 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 it's how you understand the, the framework um, uh, as well as just the history. And I think that's what Linda's done here is she hasn't just told us um, this happened and this happened and this happened. We've got like. Plays in there and uh, and uh, novels that were really important and movies and fashions and, um, you know, a real sense of like uh, things that you can, can that, that frame people's un- that shape their understanding of the world. And that's what I feel like is really kind of lacking in the way a lot of the ways that people um, talk about uh, China. It's always like as a I mean. It is an authoritarian government. There is issues there that we need to to deal with, and I'm not meaning to kind of uh, um, uh, skate over those. But um, sounds bad to say "but" after that. Um, uh, But there's a a, we've got to think about. Okay, what's going to help people on the ground, right? And it seems to me that there's the the kind of if you uh, have a government that is uh, trying to articulate its strength, and you come at it. Um, I don't know, just being blustering and not try and understand and try and work with and, and think about the, the fact that it's made up of people, um, then things get more complicated and, and the tensions rise. So if we could kind of take a step back, think about the times when there was peace. And, and yep, sorry, that's the other thing I keep thinking about reading this book and from what Balgang has said and um, uh, looking at the media and at the moment, it's like we've got to start talking about peace again. You know, I thought, I, I remember yeah. that in primary school, we had to keep saying peace is really important, but it seems like we've got to start talking about that again. Um, and I find that really kind of disturbing. Um, so, yeah, so if we can think about uh, the idea that this is, because I feel like quoting Sting now, which is getting depressing, but it's that idea of like, uh, that it's full of all these people. And if we can get to like, connect with the people in this story and get, stop having the idea of a threat in our head, and have the idea that there's that many like the the I don't know the Russians love their children too. Remember that song. I keep thinking that there's like there's the, the, the China is full of all these people that we can meet in Linda's book. Then we can start having a conversation again. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It
0: does. It does. I mean, you're very articulate, Ruth. It's a really important point. And Linda, I, I'm wondering whether you wanted to respond to that point.
1: Yeah, no, I I completely agree. And it's one of the reasons that, um and, and I constantly, you know, I listen to podcasts from China, and I listen to one called Gushu FM, which is Story FM, and it's all these different people's stories. And there's another one called Stochastic Volatility, which is by these three young feminists. And it's astonishing. And then there's, and I tell people about these, and they're like, Oh, how do I get onto it? What's the name again? I'm like, you have to know Chinese. You know, So the point about learning Chinese, and it's very frustrating, I actually wrote a piece about podcasts to try to introduce some of this stuff that you can, this notion that China is so many different voices, and so many different personalities, and all of this is so important. And I also really agree that we need to, um, it's not about, it's not about caving in, it's not about um, saying, oh, yes, well, Xi Jinping is great. It's nothing like that. But we need to understand where the Communist Party and its leadership is coming from when they talk about things so that when we talk back or talk with, that we don't we don't step on landmines that are just sitting there, you know, sticking out of the ground. Sometimes you feel like um, our leadership just goes over and goes, oh, oh, that's a really sensitive point. But I don't understand that, <clears throat> you know. Um, and so the understanding of history, the understanding of 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 Chinese communist rhetoric and what it relates to and the sensitivities of history would be such an important guide to achieving what Baogang was saying. I mean, one of the interesting things about the Song dynasty and that 120 years of peace was that the founder of the Song, um, he he was forced to um, be a rebel in the sense that he was a, a military commander and uh, China was a whole bunch of different different warring kingdoms at that point, and he was leading his his troops to go protect their infant ruler. And I have this story in the book, and they were going to protect the infant ruler. And the one day, one night, it was they were very close to the to the capital, and he woke up in his tent, and his soldiers were arrayed around him, and they had their swords, and they had the yellow a yellow robe, which is an imperial robe, and they said, "We." you are going to be the emperor. We are going to depose the infant. And he was so angry. But he said, okay, but what he did was he then took the military and really put them under control. As a result, he said, you will obey me. We will not kill that infant. We will not harm that family. And one of the things he did, very differently from a lot of other rulers who had to deal with um, putting together a kingdom from a bunch of, you know, disparate, uh, disunified states, is he said, first, we try negotiation. Um, and then we try, you know, we do we do everything to avoid war, we use war as the last resort. It's really interesting to know about these different models, as, as Gong was saying, and as Ruth was saying, I think, there are so many things that we can uh, we can avoid creating more fr- unnecessary friction. There's some necessary friction and there's unnecessary friction. And I think we stumble into uh, the United States, Australia, we all stumble into this stuff because of ignorance of history. And I think we can we can become more literate about China. More people should study Chinese. More Chinese Australians should come into politics, you know, and and and. and Come into journalism and become voices, you know, that we who can help us, who help people who don't speak Chinese hear more voices from China and hear what's what's going on there. Because again, it's not a thing about surrender, it's nothing like that. We just need to connect in a more intelligent way and a more informed and literate way.
0: Very compelling case yes. there, and Baogang, I wanted to um, bring you in here. There is also a question in the Q and A I can see that links into the original question yeah. that I asked, and and that is about Australia's diplomatic relationship with China. And would that be different if Australian leaders and the public had a better understanding of China's history?
2: Uh, definitely, if the Australia uh, diplomatic or full informed Chinese history, know the detail how the Chinese uh, diplomacy operate in real life, they probably would have a better way to manage uh, the, 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 the current situations. I'd I, I, I like to kind of go back on uh, my early remark, that is uh, to, to learn the Chinese history, we need to go to the deeply, go to those detail and how the Chinese manage the great power rivalry differently from West Europe. In particular, they said they try to manage a rival partnership. At the same time, like Song can still competing with the Leo in aggressively. But at the same time, they maintain this cooperation without war. So there are small conflicts still going on. I think that we can learn this great history to to how to develop this rivalry partnership, that that strategy applied to the United States and Australia. I think that currently, if we think talking about Australia, just only goes one way, prepare the worst case, and focus on threat, but uh, they forgot the other part of the story. China have, uh, uh, I think Linda make really good points like uh, the Song Dynasty. They they try to kind of, when the power is rising, the best way they think is uh, uh, King Wing, Wang Dong. But uh, the West tends to uh, dismiss it as a kind of propaganda rhetorical. But uh, Linda mentioned Zhou Huang Yin. Actually, he did practice this uh, principle, uh, at least, at least 60%, I think, more than 60%. So so there's a way to try to understand how the Chinese not indeed can't have this kind of practice. Then you develop some sort of collaboration. So currently just fully focused on the conflict, the war. And then the, if you take China as an the enemy, then China become enemy, then they will fighting back. So, so how we can, kind of take China as a sort of competitive rivalry, but at the same time de- may develop, continue to de- develop the uh, uh, collaboration. So the higher education across the whole world are highly integrated. And this is amazing. And plus migrations, also new conditions, uh, the Song Dynasty did, did not have. So in modern time actually we have a more bad condition to manage great power rivalry. But well, unfortunately, I think even the Chinese leader too, if you ask your question, do Australia know enough about Chinese history? Can I can also say that Chinese probably does not know enough about Chinese history too. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the Chinese only pick up the, 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 the conflict, competitive, that's a part of the story but they forgot about the Chinese have a great skill manages this competitive, uh, his, historically. They forgot this lesson. Song uh, someone knew offered with a great lesson. I think that uh, people can learn great deal from Linda's book. And, uh, and uh, one story I can mention, Linda, I think that your book is, a, it's a, you mentioned this woman. Uh, I, I found that you mentioned Zo Huang Ying. I think that story should be ta- talked about. Zhou Huang Ying's mother, he's a great politician in Chinese history. So before the song, there was a fighting for a long, long time. So the, uh, this is the first emperor, her, her, uh, his mother figured out the, why the, 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 those new uh, political region cannot last because of secession problem. Always the young babies put into the throne to be a new emperor and too young to control. So before he passed away, he made a deal with the two sons, that the younger son must succeed the older son. And he forced uh, us, and as a prime minister, uh, the minister, write down her will. You must follow it. So this is a mother, uh, manages a great succession in a family way, and peaceful, and uh, deliver peace. I I think this story will be so important for us understand contemporary Chinese politics. So we always understand the Chinese party in terms of democratic succession, election, elected new leader. But probably go back to Chinese history, how she later on manages a section, peaceful way and without conflict. Now, now this is a really story that we can learn a lot from Chinese history.
1: Yeah. Can I say something to that? Yes. That, yeah. there's, there's there's some beautiful stories like that, but there's also throughout the book the stories of horrendous successions of, oh, of, of, of yeah. fratricides and that, the murder of sons yeah, by their fathers right. and fathers that's by their sons. That's that's and, that's and, that's oh, it's just and then mothers murdering the the, the children of concubines and that's I that's mean that's it just goes completely. It goes completely crazy in many, many cases. And I would say that, I mean, I'm, I love that story. But I also think that one of the big lessons of Chinese history is that you have to manage succession. If you don't manage that's succession right. well, it can go so violent and so bad.
2: That's right, yeah. And that's
1: one of the reasons that when we look today at um, so Mao, when he came to power, there was no succession plan in, in, in Yan'an. Before the communists came to power, a Chinese journalist asked Mao, he said, you know, succession has always been a huge problem with dynasties. You know, the the actual, like what you're talking about is the exception. The rule is violence and chaos and, you know, killing and all this sort of thing. And so he said, what are you going to do about it? Um, And Mao told this Chinese journalist, he said, democracy.
2: (laughs) That's right. right. He he seems
1: to have understood in his own way. But anyway, (laughs) Mao comes and... There's no plan for, well, the plan for succession is it's going to be his closest comrade-in-arms, Lin Biao, who then in 71 suddenly drops out of the sky in a plane and, is, and it's, it's the, people, the Chinese people are told that he was planning to assassinate Mao. So, whoa, what happened to that succession plan? You know, that wasn't very good. Mao dies and then the succession, it was a piece of paper which said, with you in charge, my heart is at ease. Um, but then there's questions about that piece of paper. Was it referring to succession? Was it referring to something else? Deng Xiaoping, when he became, in effect, China's you know, ultimate leader after 1978. In fact, he only held one position. It's kind of an interesting story. Mm-hmm. But Deng Xiaoping thought one of the big problems is still succession. It's still plaguing China. So the Communist Party in the early 80s established the two-term limit. That is what they said would stabilize this problem of succession that has plagued Chinese history. And what is Xi Jinping done? He's abolished it. So That's right, yeah. the story goes on. We'll see. Mm
0: yeah indeed uh, we have quite a few questions coming into the q and a uh, terrific to see and um, we 've got a couple of questions that i 'm going to try to combine uh, for you, Linda, on literacy and um, one of one of the bits of the book that I really enjoyed was uh, when you 're talking about characters uh, Chinese characters and the development of the characters so there's a there 's a graphic in there and it just you know it's just one of the um, points of the book where you can get a lot of detail in, in, in a sort of, you know, a short period of time. It's very revealing, um, the, the, the story you're talking about, telling about the, the development of the, the characters. But um, the questions are around mass literacy, and you said that uh, this is one of the great changes uh, in China. Uh, and the question is, one of them is, is there total literacy in China and what effect has it had Uh, on the language uh, that it is no longer limited to the elite. Um, And there's another one, I'm just going down into the Q&A to find it, Uh, the point that you made about how recent widespread literacy and education is in China um, provides some greater insight into uh, the draconian censorship of today uh, and they would be interested in hearing more about issues of censorship. So essentially uh, the question of how, how literacy is changing uh, the the sort of class structures, but also that that question of uh, how it then necessitates censorship.
1: That's a very interesting question. Um, so let's go back to nineteen nineteen, and until that time, um, all formal documents and so on were written in a very dense classic. Well, not dense; it's a very economical classical style, um, and literature was. Uh, generally written in a, in, a, in quite a classical style. Now, this is I'm talking in absolutes. There's the great novels of China mix the vernacular and classical formal language. Um, but what what happened in the years leading up to 1919 and then 1919, which launched what is called the May Fourth Movement, is that there was this push to write with vernacular. Chinese to write as as Hu Shi one of the great thinkers of the time said we need to write like people talk you know it, the, the language had become the written language had become so divorced from the way people actually spoke that it was a huge impediment to literacy so from 1919 there was a huge push for vernacular literature that was the first stage of, um, and also the development of boys' schools and girls' schools and public schools in general and all of this was going on in a very chaotic period. There was advances in literacy and so on. The communists came along and they were like, okay, in 1949, they went, what is one of the great impediments? It is the language itself. It's the way it's written. The characters are really, really complex. So we're going to take some of the most basic uh, There's about two, three thousand characters that are necessary for basic literacy. We're going to take the most complex of those and we're going to make them really simpler to write. So they simplified the writing system. That was hugely important. And that was that meant that many, many more people were able to learn from, you know, they weren't necessarily children, but they were able to learn characters more easily because they were easier to learn. Um, But yes, then as you get more and more people, you know, able to speak and express themselves, and you have a government that wants to control the narrative, censorship (laughs) grows. And what we have now is what's very interesting is in China, the internet, like everywhere else has brought about a kind of um, mass democracy of expression. So the Chinese censors have had to really ramp up all levels of how they control things. So there's lists which are always changing of sensitive words, sensitive words. And they, these and, um, AI systems, I don't know exactly uh, how you describe it, but they, they search for those sensitive words and bang, you know, like things disappear. Um, And then there's also human elements and there's machine elements of the censorship system. So yes, (laughs) mass literacy means there's more people saying things that you don't want them to say. Censorship is not new. Um, There were um, emperors who, for example, um, (laughs) they didn't like the fact that Mencius, who is a Confucian philosopher, he continued the thoughts of Confucius. Mencius believed that a bad ruler could be killed like you'd kill a robber, you know, like uh, they were a criminal. If, if a ruler was really, really bad and they were making the people suffer, then they should go. <laughs> and of course, a lot of emperors, they were like, oh yes, Mencius, very good, but not that bit. So you would have, <laughs> you would have the republication of Mencius's works without that bit, you know. So this censorship has always been around, but um, now it's become, um, industrialized it's non-industrial level in terms of the exact number of the exact percentage of literate of, of literacy in the mainland i i don't know i'd have to look that up but i think you can look that up pretty easily that's probably yeah.
2: google the the linda the it's a the, the because they have to deal with such a massive issues and you mentioned industrialized it's a kind of machineization. Yes. So I let a the machine to do but the machine do a stupid things then they got the crazy the censorship and make so many of these a joke story now it's, well, it's, think, it's, a, it's a really crazy way to run the internet now. i don't oh, know yeah, and, yeah. And
1: so many ways of getting around censorship, and it's almost like a game. So, for example, you. just a really, really short example, because I know there's more questions. Is Bo Lai was a corrupt uh, leader of Chongqing and uh, the party secretary of Chongqing, and he and Xi Jinping were sort of rivals. Blah blah blah. Anyway, Bo Lai got taken down. His wife killed an Englishman. You might all remember <laughs> that. Um, and the 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 Communist Party did not want people talking about Bo Lai, the corruption, <laughs> all of this stuff. So if you wrote his name on a post in Weibo, China's Twitter and so on, then that would get censored, right? So people thought, how can we talk about it? And they began posting pictures of tomatoes, (laughs) emojis of tomatoes or tomato (laughs) recipes. And the reason is, xi hong shi is a way of saying uh, tomato in Chinese. And xi hong shi, if you kind of change the characters, it can mean Western red city, because Baoshila was also associated with a like a revolutionary red sing red songs kind of movement. So people began to use tomatoes to stand in for Baoshila. This goes on all the time. It's so much fun. And the That's Chinese right, people are did. so clever at getting around right. they want to. Very- Not the state still has all of the power, but you know, people try.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's little moments
3: of dissent. Oh. I've got to just jump in here though and say that there's like two things going on right because this is I, and I and I don't mean to take away from the amazingness of the of Chinese language expression and everything but there's a lot of other languages that are getting erased oh, and yes. lo- locked out and um yes. as with literacy and it's it's kind of a way of uh, uh, di- uh, dis- uh, forcing assimilation erasing cultures as well as um producing yes. all of this loveliness and that's the ho- I actually find that's the kind of the trick with looking at their PS uh, the People's Republic of China or oh, the Chinese culture, there's so much wonderful there. Um and I felt like a bummer saying this. <laughs>
2: there's so much more,
3: like I really, really appreciate all the way that people play with things. But then, you know, I've been in situations also where people have said you're not allowed to speak. If there's one like if you're in the Tibetan regions and then there's one Chinese person in the room, you can't speak Tibetan. Right. They, like, they're, they're, they're,
1: yeah. 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 And it. it's it's Tibetan, it's Uyghur, yeah, it's Uyghur. Mongolia. Yeah. Mongolian. Yeah. Yeah. Recently, they've said Mongolians can't be educated in Mongolian primarily in primary school and so on. A lot of inner Mongolians are very, very distressed. Um, But it's also even local Chinese dialects. Yeah, yeah, of
3: course. There's so much variety in China.
1: That's the other thing I find is amazing
3: is the differences of all the different places. It's so rich and, uh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> That's a really
0: important point that you raise, though, Ruth. Yeah. Um, I might try and get uh, sneak in a couple of questions before we have to, to say goodbye to our guests. Uh, but one is about the Chinese government's, uh, I guess, approach to the world, aggressive approach to the world. And actually, I think, Linda, your last chapter is called The Rise of the Wolf Warrior. Uh, and our question is about um, whether it's building hatred against China. Um, so wondering about your thoughts on the effectiveness of, of the wolf warrior approach and whether that's actually undermining uh, its relations with, with other countries and, and, and also attitudes of people uh, to China.
1: Yeah, I do think that it has been a, a serious backfire in international on the international scene. I think it's been very much playing to um, domestic audiences uh, because they're the ones. And who so really, really love that, um, you know, pushback and the the anger and the making fun and the mockery and all that stuff that plays very well among some people domestically. There's a whole lot of people who hate it, but there's um, a very loud and enabled uh, internet-enabled uh, crowd. Um, it is definitely hurting China, and that probably is why Xi Jinping recently said that China needs to work at building a more affable image, a more likable image. So there is a little bit of a pushback, a tamping down of that um, tendency. But I think we'll have to see what happens in the future. It's all still happening right now. It's all ongoing.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering, Baogang, do you have anything to add to that?
2: Um, I think that behind this uh, wallet diplomacy is uh, uh, a profound uh, power change going on. So currently Chinese already uh, take over uh, America in trade. China is the number one trade, number one investment, the largest investment. And uh, then they start to challenge American financial dollar dominate system. So then we will see more conflict when coming out. In, in particular, Chinese start to challenge American dollar system because Chinese figure out the trade currently only 20% uh, trade settlement in Chinese Yuan, 80% still in dollar. And the Chinese, Chinese lose a lot of money. So they, they try to kind of uh, save some money like you use uh, the SWIFT systems. The the, country, the Chinese developed their own system, so then they can they receive a 1.10 uh, transaction fee. That's a huge money because you would think about Chinese total trade volume. So when the Chinese implement this kind of policy in recent year now, that will be another kind of challenge American the domination. So then we will see the more conflict going on. But I go back, I think so. There's, there's a slow and they uh, the deal offers your when your competition at the same time maintain uh, uh, as this uh, cooperation. So how do you manage those two together, combined together, require a skill. So so this is might be not useful go back. I think the Chinese history offers great deal.
0: Mm, yeah, and Ruth, I might get your views on this, but I am going to add a, a question in. Um, from one of our audience members as well, Uh, and that is that the ABC is the most trusted source of news information in Australia, but its most recent correspondent had to flee China. So uh, how can Australians get reliable news or information about current affairs in China? Tricky question.
1: I've got an easy answer. Can I just jump (laughs) in with
0: it? Linda, and then Ruth, I'll give you the last word.
1: Okay, easy answer for that is... um, Subscribe to things like SUP China, S-U-P China. They'll give you a daily bulletin with links to uh, things from all over the world in English on um, culture, economics, politics, etc., etc. That's one, I would say, if you have a one-stop shop, it's that one.
3: Terrific. Thank you. I don't have no idea what to say about Wolf Warrior. Uh, Wolf Warrior it's, honestly, it's like goes over my head and I don't understand it. So I think I should just shut up rather than saying something I don't understand. But um, the uh, I was going to say in terms of information um, that there's there's a really excellent um, environmental uh, news feed called China Dialogue that I would also subscribe to as well. Because I was thinking that was something that we didn't bring up and I think is like one of the biggest elements and i actually got a lot from linda's book about that as well is like uh, yeah environmental issues and how they're affecting china uh, china and it it lays everything out for you so sub china and china dialogue
0: well i think that (laughs) might
2: be one of the biggest uh uh problems for us all of us is disinformation use the bar used both by Washington and Beijing. So they use this disinformation as a strategy. Now this is makes it really hard for us to understand what is going on now. Because many things you read, you cannot trust now. The disinformation becomes a uh, politics now, becomes a strategy.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, but I think the uh, the topic that you just brought up, Ruth, that might be a topic for uh, when we can bring Linda to Melbourne for an actual <laughs> event in 2022 uh, and certainly a lot to talk about there as well. Uh, but unfortunately we have run out of time uh, and it was a really riveting conversation. Uh, thank you to our panellists. Uh, thank you to Linda for writing this superb book Uh, and thank you to our very engaged audience to see the chat has been uh working overtime today which is terrific to see and i think it demonstrates that there's a lot of interest in the topic uh, as well as in the stories uh, that have been discussed in tonight's event Uh, so the webinar has been recorded if you've registered for the event uh you'll be emailed the appropriate links when they are ready our next scheduled latrobe asia webinar is on asian monarchies in the modern age. And it's another book launch. Uh, We'll be discussing Emeritus Professor Dennis Altman's book uh, called God Save the Queen, which might sound like it's about um, UK politics and uh, our UK monarchies, and it is. But there's also a lot in the book about Asian monarchies. So um, don't miss that event. That will be held on 12th of October. Uh, but please follow us uh, on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list to find more details for online events uh, and La Trobe Asia publications. But thank you all for joining us this evening. Thank
2: you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>